I need the self-assurance. It's for me. It's really for me. First thing we do when we sit is we connect with the sound of the gong, which <clears throat> if, even if there is no gong, the idea of connecting in with the space of the present and just relaxing, just relaxing. We're not like, it's not a race, it's not some thing that we're trying to accomplish. Buzzing, thank you. <laughs> But uh, it really helps the shift into meditation to just relax completely at the beginning. Sink down into your cushion or your chair or whatever you sit on, your bed of nails, whatever it is. Just relax. No agenda. And then following in the footsteps of the Buddha <clears throat> in his main presentation of meditation that's common to all traditions called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, he says that we should sit at the foot of a tree. So imagine that your seat is under a tree, wherever you are. And that we are ardent, clearly comprehending, and mindful. So ardent is connecting with presence, connecting with the energy that's present in our body. And we enhance that connection by straightening up, assuming the posture, the royal posture of meditation, pushing upward from the back of the spine, pulling inward slightly from the bottom of the spine in the front or the bottom of the abdomen, and together pushing the spine upward, extending upward towards the ceiling with the back of the head leading the way and the chin tilted downward slightly. Pushing all the way up as much as we can and then relax again a little bit. So it's not forced, but we're still very upright. Opened up all the channels and windpipes of the body. And relax again without reducing the upright posture, relax the head, the eyes, the jaw area, the neck and the shoulders, and down through the rest of the body. 
and through that relaxation connect or feel the slight vibration of energy in the body. And connect to that energy in the body through your intention to be present, open, accepting, gentle, and brave. And then open up your mind to the full extent of whatever space you're in. If you're outside, that's quite a lot of space. If you're inside, it's a little bit smaller. Just feel the space in that area, wherever you are. Go out to the walls, connect to the ceiling. Feel the space behind you and the space below you. and establish in a light way a sphere of awareness all around you. Feel the temperature, the energy in the air, the light, whatever sounds are present outside your space, inside your space, and inside your body. And then continuing to work our way inward, connect with the breath and feel the breath coming all the way in, ideally bringing the breath to the lower abdomen and feeling it going all the way out. Connecting with the full cycle of the breath for a few breaths. Bringing the breath into the belly and instead of inflating the upper part of the lungs and having the chest move and open, instead inflating the belly and gently pushing the air downward and then pressing from the lower abdomen to breathe out. And then shifting in the sense of changing the focus and emphasizing the out-breath and the expansion of the out-breath into the space in front of you, going down the nostrils, going to the floor and then out in front in the space in front of you and around you. And open up your awareness again to that space in front and around. And then come back to the next out breath. 
focusing in on the feeling of letting go. Extending outward. Spending the in-breath on that expansion process. And then coming back into the body and connecting with the next out-breath. Notice the slight sense of watching yourself meditate. The internal commentator or dialogue Hopefully it's a monologue. Let's see if you can find the source of that internal chatter and release it. And just continue present energetically present, aware of what's going on, and focused on the present and the breath. <clears throat> and within that space, when thoughts arise, memories, plans, commentary, fixation on sense objects of the five senses notice it notice the way thought captures the energy of the mind the mind collapses reduces down into a little thought notice that process and just release it and dissolve into the space of that sphere of awareness that we established early on.
I think it refers to Dzogchen, innermost secret, something like that. Anyway, um, I'm going to skip the poem. That's very poetic. And at the end of the poem, the author, Dilgo Kansai she says, The Sovereign Lord, the Master, so I'm on page four. The Master Mipom, Jamyam, Namgyal Gyatso, arose as the very embodiment of the primordial wisdom of the great. Great meaning, vast and non-referential love. So, uh, love without reference point. It's the highest level of love or compassion in the Buddhist tradition of the venerable Manjushri Ever Youthful. Manjushri Ever Youthful is Manjugosha, which is another form of Manjushri, the ever youthful form of Manjushri, and uh, it's a popular form of Manjushri, emphasizing the youthful quality of enlightened mind that is constantly fresh and uh sort of in the state of beginner mind, without preconception, without projection, without presumption and arrogance and stereotypes and all that stuff, all that weird stuff. Um, holder of the secret treasure of great all-knowing wisdom, the one and only sire, the one and only sire, what an interesting term, of unnumbered Buddhas, and their bodhisattva heirs. Sometimes they have numbers. Like the the Buddhas of this Kalpa, they're supposed to be a thousand, and they actually have numbers. And our Buddha, Shakyamuni, was number four. But now he's talking about, I think he means numberless, like innumerable, actually. The three worlds. Anybody know what the three worlds are? I, I don't think he's talking about like, the developed world and the lesser developed world and the third world. Any guesses what the three worlds are? Desire and form and formless. Desire world, world of desire, form and formless worlds, yeah. That triad of cosmic uh, cosmology, of uh, Buddhist cosmology. And where do we live? Desire. Desire. <laughs> I want. Thank you. Um, the three worlds are adorned with the sounding drumbeat of his name. Interestingly, my neighbor is playing the drums. He plays the drums he's practicing right now. And I can hear it says he's playing Mipom. It says Mipom, Mipom. <laughs> anyway, um, this brief account of his life is divided into eight parts. <laughs> so here we have a little, hey, here we have a little overview of the book. Um, the first is the general description of the excellence of the ground of his emanation. This was a particularly wild part. Uh, this is followed by an account of how, through the power of his bodhicitta, he took birth in this sphere of existence. The third and fourth parts tell of how he entered the door of the Dharma and then relied on qualified teachers for his study and reflection. The fifth part then describes how the precious Mipam hoisted the banner of practice of the profound teachings, while the sixth part goes on to give some indication of his secret life. 
what he did on his, his own time, privately. The seventh part continues. The sixth part sounds interesting, right? You're all like, oh, I got to switch to the sixth part. <laughs> the seventh part continues with a description of Mipam Rinpoche's activities for the sake of the doctrine and beings. And the eighth part concludes with an account of how his emanated form. This is a great way of saying somebody, die, have, uh, somebody dies. His form was gathered back into the ultimate expanse. That's cool. So, uh, the ground of emanation. This is like, uh, so I'll, I'll read just a little bit of this and then I'm skip. When the spontaneously present appearances of primordial radiance manifests outwardly from the luminosity of the original ground, that which recognizes them as the self-experience of primordial wisdom and achieves enlightenment marked by six special characteristics is the Dharmakaya, Samantabhadra, the primordial lord and glory of all of samsara and nirvana. Samantabhadra is beyond all dualistic discursive thought and yet by the power of the self-arisen cognitive potency, that is his compassion, he reaches out impartially to beings who pervade the whole of space without end. His effortless activities are permanent. Just an odd thing to say in the Buddhist tradition, isn't that? Permanent. Omnipresent and spontaneous. Also purple, but no, we're not going to get into that. In order to bring benefit throughout the three times to all beings to be guided, he manifests in the three families of the wisdom deities of the enlightened body, speech, and mind. The three families. Now, the mafia has five families, and there's five Buddha families, but the three families, they don't give a note. Um, so it's not immediately evident, but... Often the three families refer to the three great bodhisattvas of uh, Vajrapani, Manjushri, and Avalokiteshvara, representing respectively power of Buddhahood is Vajrapani, Manjushri is wisdom, and Avalokiteshvara is compassion. But, um, of the five kayas, so normally we talk about three kayas, Nirmanakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Dharmakaya. And then often there's a fourth kaya, which is the Swabhavaka kaya, which is the combination of the three kayas. And then there's sometimes they split out another one. They split, sometimes they split the Dharmakaya into the Jnana Dharmakaya, the wisdom Dharmakaya, and the, I don't know. I can't remember what they call the other Dharmakaya, maybe just Dharmakaya. It is thus that the Lord Mipam appeared, boom, all in, oh, sorry, one in whom all the victorious ones were made manifest in a single wisdom body, inseparable from the expanse of primordial wisdom of Manjushri, the venerable wheel of stability. And wheel of stability is capitalized as like a person or sort of an entity, a being somebody whose name is Wheel of Stability. For indeed, it is through the infinite and glorious qualities of this great hero that the immaculate lives of all the Buddhas from whom, in truth, he is never parted are adorned and made beautiful. So this idea that, uh, so this uh, sort of very... Um, 
poetic, beautiful, and far out, you know, literally far out description of the appearance of uh, embodiment from the Dharmakaya. It's at the beginning here, as well as the presentation of uh, the wisdom being of Manjushri as being the sort of source of all enlightened manifestation. Interesting. Then he gives a number of quotes, and uh, well, he gives a quote, and then on the next page, as the text, this text describes Manjushri as the nature of the ultimate expanse of the Dharmakaya, the inconceivable freedom from conceptual elaboration. He is suchness, ultimate reality, is the youthful vase body beyond the ordinary intellect. And this is a Vajrayana phrase, the youthful vase body beyond the ordinary intellect is uh, some some way of describing the the uh, I think some way of describing the uh, relationship between the different kayas the knowing aspect of the wisdom of inner luminosity and for this reason he can never be parted from the immaculate qualities of the result the result being Buddhahood and so the idea being that he, he manifests without parting from the Dharmakaya. He manifests Sambhogakaya and Nirmanakaya without parting from Dharmakaya. So it is that he personifies the great state of union, the union of the Kayas, the state of great equality that permeates the whole of samsara and nirvana. He is inexpressible, ineffable, and inconceivable. So there's not really any point in talking further about him. And we're just going to skip to the end of the book. <laughs> just kidding. Bless um, over. <laughs> skipping the quotes. So never stirring even slightly from the state of ultimate reality, Majushri, the self-experience of wisdom, spontaneous and perfect, is the sovereign lord of the five enlightened kayas. In the pure field of the indestructible Vajra expanse, he reveals himself in beauteous and splendid form beyond all movement and change as the Sambhogakaya mandala of the native illusory manifestation endowed with the seven qualities of union and stainless bliss, clouds of the five perfections or certainties of the five peaceful families and forms of wrathful subjugation. So we have this uh, really flowery language used in a, in a, uh, as a way of describing how does form come out of formless? How does Sambhogakaya, which is what he's talking about here with um, the beauteous and splendid form and the, and, um, the five enlightened kayas are the five Buddha, Buddhas and the five certainties are the five certainties of the Sambhogakaya. Like, how does the Sambhogakaya arise out of the Dharmakaya without losing the uh, sort of um, the essence of Dharmakaya? Uh, you know, so how does creation, how does manifestation happen? How does creation happen? And the Buddhists have developed in the Vajrayana tradition this, this very uh, ornate way of describing this non-manifesting manifestation non-manifesting manifestation not an infestation but a manifestation uh, let's see 
giving this, the quote, in terms of his own benefit, Manjushri remains in the ground or level of Buddhahood, the ultimate result. Nevertheless, through the power of his compassion, he appears for the sake of beings as numerous as the sky is vast. So this contradictory, seemingly contradictory situation of being the Buddha, being the Dharmakaya, and yet appearing. How did we reconcile these two? The only way to reconcile these two is that he appears without ever leaving Dharmakaya. You can't like present it that he left Dharmakaya and therefore is no longer Dharmakaya, but that they're in union. And that was the secret. That is actually is the great secret, is appearing without leaving the realm of non-appearance. How can something manifest while still being, in essence, non-manifest. Totally inconceivable, in other words, ineffable and inexpressible. Aren't those the same thing, ineffable and inexpressible? No? Okay, my mistake, thank you. Uh, for as long as samsara endures, he guides them according to their need in an array of countless illusory appearances. Effortlessly, at every moment, he bestows on them the glorious states of benefit and happiness appropriate to their aspirations. Skipping the quote, in keeping with the teachings of the Tathagata, I will briefly explain the inconceivable ways in which, while never being separate from the Dharmadhatu, the ultimate and def definitive secret, he nevertheless acts on the relative level in harmony with the perception, perceptions of the beings to be trained. That is the secret. How does, how does he manifest without ever leaving the realm of Dharmadhatu? And then he goes into this legendary account of the great being Manjushri, who lived very, very long time ago in a place very, very far away. And uh, turns out to be the essence of all the Buddhas. And uh, he talks about his his uh, various aspects or um, attributes, and uh, we we enter into this realm of the inconceivable cosmology of Vajrayana Buddhism in particular, but Buddhism in general actually. Um, on page eleven, the first full paragraph, moreover, from the moment. I'm sorry, the last sentence of the of the overlapping paragraph. Such are the ways in which Manjushri reveals himself in the form of Buddhas, past, present, and future. So he, all the Buddhas are of the essence of Manjushri. Moreover, from the moment that the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas heirs, the Bodhisattva, and their Bodhisattva heirs, first generate that the mind of enlightenment until they at last attain enlightenment, Manjushri manifests as the foremost of their bodhisattva sons, assisting them in their deeds of enlightenment and their accomplishment of the path of the transcendent virtues, ocean vast. Furthermore, for beings as many as the immense city of space, he appears in the form of bodhisattvas, shravakas, prateka buddhas, who train beings on the path. He manifests as ordinary human beings, or as birds or other animals, in short, as the diversified nirmanakaya both animate and inanimate. So the idea that the Buddha manifests in all these different forms, Manjushri as the Buddha manifests in all these different ways, um, as the Nirmanakaya, humans, 
different types of Buddhists and animals, birds and so forth. Both, and then he says both animate and inanimate. This is referring to this notion that there's a type of nirmalakaya that is inanimate objects that, that are embodiments of enlightened activity. And the most famous example of this in the Tibetan tradition is is uh, these iron bridges, iron chain link bridges that were built by a teacher named Tung Tung Gyalpo in, I don't know, like the 15th century or something. And uh, he's, he got really good at building chain link bridges, which are a lot better than ropes, I, I hear. <laughs> and uh, I think they needed a lot of bridges in Tibet. You know, there's a lot of little mountains, a lot of big mountains and little ca caverns and stuff. And I think you can imagine how many people must have died on bridges that broke. And so this was a great Nirmanakaya activity, the bridges themselves, sort of interesting idea. Uh, in doing so, he works for the sake of beings, the very confines of space itself. It's sort of odd phrase in that space has no confines and, um, and in accordance with their needs. And a couple more quotes and... Um, He goes on and on about the greatness of Manjushri, and I would like to skip, unless people have comments or questions along the way, please do chime in if you read through this and and like uh, either stumbled upon something you didn't understand or thought something was quite unusually beautiful or interesting or remarkable. Shout it out. Um, but I'm going to skip to the bottom of... Um, 15, or sort of the middle, let's say, of 15. In this way, after the quote, and likewise in the teaching of the peerless lion of the Shakyas, Shakyamuni, our Buddha, our, our guy, the fourth Buddha to appear in the present good Kalpa. So the good Kalpa is the name of our Kalpa that we live in in the Buddhist cosmological scheme, and there's a thousand Buddhas in this Kalpa, and the Buddha's number four. If you want, you can read the biographies of all 1,000 Buddhas in a, in a uh, text called the uh, Thousand Buddhas of the Good Kalpa. Now, they haven't happened yet, but this text knows what their biographies are going to be. But anyway, um, Manjushri is praised as the foremost among of the Bodhisattva children. And the quote is, endowed with the wisdom body at all times free of aging and, deca and decay, you range, Manjushri, ever playful, ever youthful, sorry, through every Buddha field past, present, and to come and shed your light therein. And therefore also in the teaching of myself, the king of the Shakyos, Shakyamuni, you show yourself, Manjushri, as a bodhisattva and the best of humankind, and thus contrive the benefit of beings. Nice how they've, they've made it uh, gender neutral instead of mankind, which we find in many older texts. Humankind is good. As it is said in this and other texts, when the Buddha appeared in this world, Manjushri requested and upheld the ocean-like pitakas. Pitakas are baskets, and they refer to the different <laughs> picnics that, no, 
uh, picnic baskets that the Dharma texts are divided into, of the teachings of the sutras and the tantras, and the essence, vast and profound of the Dharma of the supreme vehicle. At the moment of his uh, supreme vehicle, probably Mahayana, at the moment of his manifest enlightenment, he assumed the form of Yamantaka, which is the wrathful form of Manjushri, king of wrathful deities, and crushed the race of demons. Through wondrous display and through actions skilled in, in means, and through actions skilled in means, all inconceivable, he benefited beings on the three levels of existence, which I think we talked about earlier, desire, form, and formless. And... Um, by driving throughout the whole of space the chariot of the enlightened activities of the conqueror. He is indeed mighty among the bodhisattvas, the children of the Buddha's mind. Moreover, from the time when the Sugata passed into Nirvana, so Sugata is another epithet of the Buddha, till the time he passed into Nirvana, till the age, this age of strife, Manjushri's activities for the sake of the doctrine and beings continue and will continue in their unbroken course. Indeed, his blessing and his compassion are now more swift than ever. In the period of unbearable destruction, when the doctrine of the lion of the Sakyas, our protector, sinks into decline, it is then that I will do my work. And this refers to this idea that uh, of the, what's called a degeneration of the Dharma, that the, the Dharma is at its height at the Buddha's lifetime and shortly thereafter, and then it progressively declines in quality and, ex and extent and quality over periods of years, hundreds, thousands of years, until it disappears entirely and there's a gap where there's no Dharma at all, and then the next Buddha is born and introduces the Dharma again in the form of uh, Maitreya. And as it has been widely taught in these and other texts, the glorious and noble Lord Nagarjuna, the great charioteer of the doctrine in the noble land of India, together with most of the other great masters, adornments of our world, Chandrakirti, Shanti Deva. So he names all these great masters. Nagarjuna, the great teacher of the middle way, Madhyamaka, and uh, who opened the door of uh, emptiness to emptiness through uh, re uh, rescuing the Prajnaparamita Sutras from the land of the Nagas underneath the oceans and taught their meaning far and wide. And Chandrakirti, who further explained the intent of Nagarjuna with his text, The Introduction to the Middle Way. And Nagarjuna's main text is the, the, the root verses on the, on the Middle Way or on Madhyamaka. And then Shantideva, famous author of the uh, entry into the way of the Bodhisattva. And the great Bodhisattva abbot, Shantarakshita. So Shantarakshita is the gentleman who uh, was first asked to come to Tibet to bring the Dharma to Tibet by the Tibetan king, Trisong Detson. And he became, he's called the Bodhisattva abbot because he mostly taught Mahayana. He did not teach Vajrayana in Tibet. He was a, a, a peerless holder of monastic discipline and of um, scholarly knowledge. And he tried to establish the first monastery in Tibet, Samye. And uh, the local 
energies were against him and he was unable to accomplish that goal and so he said he asked the king to invite Padmasambhava who had some special tricks up his sleeve and was able to do it but uh, Shantarakshita in the meantime ordained seven Tibetans as novices and helped them succeed to become monks and thereby established the monastic tradition in Tibet and also the tradition of learning in Tibet the Mahayana system of education. The Master Manjushri Mitra, who was one of the great early teachers of Dzogchen, a teacher of, of Padmasambhava, and a teacher of the next person, the great Pandita Vimalamitra, who is really the main person that brought Dzogchen into Tibet and taught it widely. Padmasambhava brought it, but did not teach it widely. Padmasambhava basically taught to 25 individuals, whereas Vimalamitra taught widely, the uh, Dzogchen, and so on, have all manifested as the playful display of the wisdom of Manjushri, ever youthful. So they all have this, this quality of being embodiments of Manjushri. Guided by him, they unmistakably expounded the wisdom of the conqueror, the Buddha. So, uh, to the increase and in propagation of the Dharma of learning and realization, the two aspects of Dharma, learning and realization. And sometimes people focus exclusively on, on trying to achieve realization through meditation, uh, which is very difficult without learning. And learning has this uh, quality, while uh, can be pretty boring at times, it has this quality of um, providing uh, a easier or, or more reliable sense of continuity of the teachings. Realization is rather rare. Learning can be um, sort of uh, established in a more predictable way. And so the Buddha taught that there are these two ways and he emphasized to his students to equally preserve and uh, develop these two ways of, of uh, making the Dharma happen learning and realization. Moreover, in the capital city of Shambhala, in the north, oh, Shambhala, that mystical land in the north, Manjushri appeared as the eighth sovereign, Manjushri Yashas. So uh, Shambhala was famous for um, ha having been uh, established or being the uh, realm where the, f the first king who received the Kala Chakra Tantra teachings from the Buddha, directly from the Buddha. And he went back to his kingdom and taught everybody and everybody practiced the Kala Chakra. And uh, there were a series of seven kings, including that first king, Suchandra. And um, by the end of the seventh king, everybody in the, in the kingdom had achieved enlightenment. And the kingdom ascended into the Sambhogakaya, just sort of like rose up like a big, huge uh, flying saucer into space. And uh, then began a series of 25 um, Rigdon kings, a total of 32 kings. So when he says the eighth sovereign, I believe he means the first Rigdon, Majushri Yashas. He brought together the holders of various yogic disciplines into a single family of the unsurpassed Anutura Tantra of the Supreme Vajrayana and composed the Tantra in five chapters. 
that phrase ring any bells for anyone? Is that cool? That's that's the same phrase that Trungpa Rinpoche used in the fulfillment of the wishes of Trungpa Rinpoche. That chant that we do at the end of of the the evening when we're in retreat, fulfilling the wishes of Chogyam Trungpa. Uh, the unsurpassed Anuttara Tantra of the Supreme Vajrayana, in particular, right? <laughs> Catchy phrase. You got to use it. Um, Compose the Tantra in five chapters, which generally refers to, uh, usually refers to the uh, Goya Samaja Tantra, but I'm not sure. There's no note on it, which condensed the meaning of the root Tantra of the primordial Buddha. In the land of snows, in the time of the Dharma king, Sonsen Gampo. He appeared as Tonmi Sambhota. So this is the legendary account of the development of the Dharma in Tibet, where this this king, Tonmi Songsen Gompo, woke up one day to a thud on the roof of his palace. Big boom, you know, sort of like like as if a tree limb fell on the top of your roof, like And uh, he went up there in his pajamas and uh, went up to the roof and was like, What's going on up here? And lo and behold, it was like a stupa had fallen and a box containing Tibetan, uh, containing Sanskrit texts of Dharma. And he's like, whoa, what is this? And uh, somehow he magically was able to uh, understand that this was uh, uh, sent by the, uh, the Buddha in some way, sort of magical message from the Buddha. And the Tibetans at that point had no written language, and he uh, deputizes his most scholarly dude named Tonmi Sambhota to create a language to translate these texts, a written language. And so he creates the first uh, written, lang- written language in uh, written alphabet or whatever in Tibetan, the first bilingual translator. Um, and then as the omniscient Mahaguru, Loden Choksi, Saul. And they were, again, Loden Choksi, right? We do a chant that mentions Loden Choksi. If anyone remembers that. When would that be? What time oh. period did they develop that language? Songsen Gompo is said to be the uh, mid 7th century, the 600s. And then, as the sovereign lord Trisung Detson, who's said to be the mid to uh, third quarter of the 8th century, the 700s. Trisung Detson is the king that invites Chantarakshita and then Padmasambhava and uh, the charioteer of the doctrine in Tibet. So uh, King Trisung Detson really establishes the Buddha Dharma in Tibet. Then as the great translator of Rakshita. So he's naming all these different great individuals who are emanations of Manjushri or embodiments of, manifestations of. Um, and subsequently, this gentleman, Nupchen Sanjay Yeshe, who is one of the uh, main teachers of the Dzogchen tradition after Vimalamitra, student of Vimalamitra, and starts uh, one of the main, what in, in the Nyingma tradition is uh, the, the oral transmission of the Dzogchen teachings. In the Nyingma tradition, you have two aspects of transmission. You have the treasure, 
tradition, which is wildly popular because it's so amazing, called Terma in Tibetan, where Padmasambhava uh, planted, implanted texts into the minds of those 25 individuals I mentioned. And he also planted physical objects and texts all throughout Tibet, along with his colleague, Yeshe Tsogyal, who kept track and wrote a wrote a, an extensive list of what was being buried where and who was going to discover it and when. And that's the Terma tradition. And the other tradition is the Kama, which is the Tibetan word K-A-M-A. That means the oral tradition that came from Vimalamitra in particular, also Vairochana, uh, to people like Nupchen Sanjay Yeshe. In later times, he appeared as the fearless Mahapandita Rongzong Chuzong, who is about the 10th or 11th century, which was the early part of the what's called the second uh, wave of the introduction of Buddhism into Tibet after the evil king Long Dharma was assassinated. Long Dharma. So there was this persecution of Buddhism. Uh, three. Uh, three generations or about 50 years after Trisung Detsen lives or so. This king was a throwback to the Bud tradition. And uh, after he was assassinated, then the Dharma came back slowly and gradually. And one of the main teachers in the Nyingma tradition during that period is, in the early period, is Rongzong. And we'll see Rongzong mentioned a lot. Uh, both in the articles that I circulated and later on in the, in, the, in the introduction of this book and in other places, we'll see it. Then is Jomgun. Jomgun is a very familiar name. We have Jomgun Kongchul, we have Jomgun Kensei Wangpo, we have Jomgun Nipong. Jomgun is the youthful uh, protector, which is the epithet of Manjushri. And uh, here we have it applied to a gentleman who had the title of the Sakya Pandita. Pandita is a title, means great scholar. And the Sakya is uh, one of the four schools of Tibetan Buddhism, given that name because their main establishment was in the place of Sakya, a place called Sakya, which I think meant yellow earth, something like that. Um, and his name was Kungatenpa Jeltsin, and he was a very famous scholar. And uh, so he was recognized as um, omniscient and a manifestation of uh, Manjushri. Then as the omniscient Longchen Rabjam, the great Nyingma master, meditation master and scholar, who we've been reading some of his texts in recent classes, powerful and victorious. Later, he appeared as the Lord, the great being, Lozongdrakpa, Tsongkhapa. So this sort of Rime aspect, you know, Manjushri appears in all the different schools. We had the Sakya, we had the with Pandita, we had the Nyingma, with uh, Longchen Rabjam and Rongzom, and uh, now we have uh, the, the Geluk with Tsongkhapa, and as Jonggun Lochen Tempa Nyinche, and so on. Indeed, most of the learned non-sectarian masters of the old and new traditions. So the old and new traditions refers to that uh, dividing period that I just mentioned. The old is before the persecution of Buddhism, and the new is the, the uh, re-importation of Buddhism from India after the persecution. And the old, in the old period, was exclusively Nyingma. 
and they adopted the name Nyingma, which means the old, the ancient ones, early on in the second wave, the new wave of uh, Buddhism in Tibet, to distinguish themselves from all those new traditions. Before that, there was there was no need to distinguish themselves because it was just Nyingmas without the name Nyingmas. Anyway, um, most of the learned and uh, non-sectarian masters of the old and new traditions, accomplished mass holders of the doctrine, guided by the supreme deity, Manjushri, and not one without his empowering blessing, were all acknowledged as emanations of Manjushri, as their individual biographies make clear. And further in the future, it has been intimated in the prophecies of the College Chakra scriptures. When they say scriptures, there's uh, there's more than one Kala Chakra Tantra, there's a Root Tantra, and then there's uh, supplementary Tantras. And most Tantras are like that. They have a few Tantras that form like a set. Um, uh, that he will take the form of the ferocious Laman Tarche, destroyer of Asuras, the wheel brandishing Kalki of Shambhala. Kalki is uh, actually the name of the first seven kings of Shambhala, the Kalkins. Um, and for some reason, he's using it here of Shambhala. Who, so he's the 25th king of Shambhala who will uh, appear and gather all the forces of good at a time a few centuries from now, like 2340 or something like that. Not that far away when the world will be in a completely terrible situation, state of, of uh, degradation and violence. And this king will appear and overthrow the forces of evil and establish happiness, and they will all live happily after, ever after. Who will destroy the armies of the barbarians and will propagate the Dharma generally and most especially the teaching of the unsurpassed Vajrayana. Moreover, all these beings who are not separate from the wisdom play of the venerable Lord of Knowledge, i.e. Manjushri, all of them appearing in the past, present, and future are acknowledged as emanations of the Guru of Ogyan, Padmasambhava, the knower of the three times. So connecting now all of them, Manjushri and all of those other people too, Padmasambhava. Um, the Lord Atisha, famous uh, propagator of the teachings of Lojong, mind training and the slogans, the seven and seven points and 59 slogans, um, who was also, of course, an emanation of Manjushri, said that from Kenshin Bodhisattva, which is an epithet of uh, Shantarakshita, Kenshin being great knowledgeable one or great um, knower, great scholar, onward, and for as long as the Buddha Dharma lasts, all Kenpos who have appeared and will appear in the Vinaya lineage would be one with him in nature. Not sure quite what he means by the Vinaya lineage, but I guess he means monastic Kenpos, <laughs> as opposed to non-monastic Kenpos, sorry. I want to clarify, anytime they say Guru Rinpoche, they mean Amasambhava, right? I believe so, yes. Yeah, thank you. Um, the manifestations of the great bodhisattvas residing on the grounds of realization are indeed inconceivable. Let's see, that has a footnote, right? 32, what are the uh, 
the foot. What are the feet note? Uh, oh, uh, Guru Rinpoche is understood to be an emanation of Manjushri as indicated by the names of his eight manifestations, which are the same as the names of Manjushri given in the Samgiti. The Samgiti is shorthand for the Manjushri Nama Samgiti, which is the first uh, Tantra in the Tantra collection of the teachings of the Buddha and is a is a, like a, a, a text that basically lists all the different names of Majushri and his qualities. So let's see, as is said in the Sublime Continuum, the Sublime Continuum is the Uttara Tantra. It's a text by who? Anybody? Anybody? Uttara Tantra. Know your text. Maitreya. Maitreya. Thank you very much. Uttara Tantra the sublime continuum. Wherefore, in all the water vessels, disciples to be trained, the sun-like image of the Sugura will immediately arise. Furthermore, the Lord Mipam himself was able with the clear vision of the wisdom of a, oops, there we go, of a superior being to see directly what was hidden, and he was able to reveal the manner of his previous births. In an earlier existence, he was the master Dotok. What a cool name. Dotok. Telpa Dorje Jeltsin, the yogi of the secret mantra, became the principal spiritual preceptor of China. And he goes on to, to tell some stories about this guy. Um, oh, they, they lock him in a, in a cell for a year to test him. Isn't that nice? <laughs> you want to test your, your teacher. You know, it's good to test the teacher before you, like, become a disciple of a teacher. You should really check them out thoroughly. So the, this guy's the king, so he locks him in a cell for a year. No air, water, food, no bathroom. And, of course, they open up the oven, and he's fully cooked, and he's the same, same as before. And uh, when the master returns to Tibet, He's able to give great assistance to the yogis living there. Jamgun Jamgun Kensei Wangpo himself, the great Kensei, who turns out to be uh, one of Mipam's teachers, uh, says to Manjushri that thanks to his own clear-sighted wisdom, he too had seen that the yogi had indeed been one of Mipam's previous incarnations. So he confirms this prior incarnation. And then at that time, he had explained to others the five texts of Maitreya 100 times. That would take a really long time. Because to explain those five texts alone would take, I don't know, probably a year. So to do that 100 times, let's see, 100 times one year is... Five texts of Maitreya. We'll come back to this. It's good that you begin to learn the names of these different texts and the schemes of them because it makes you look important if you know them, right? Uh, let's see. Moreover, when the all-seen Kensei Wangpo was rigs in Jigme Lingpa. That's a cool one. So Kensei Wangpo is an incarnation of Jigme Lingpa, who was a manifestation or connection of uh, Longchenpa and was the next greatest Nyingma master. And so Kensei the Great was a, a manifestation or incarnation of Jigme Lingpa. 
At that time, Mipan was Tsongpo Chujitra Pukpa, a scholar highly accomplished, etc. Said that after hearing Jingmei Lingpa's knowledge, uh, after hearing that the omniscient Jingmei Lingpa's knowledge had simply burst forth without his needing to study, which is uh, 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 something that Jingmei Lingpa is famous for, is that he never needed to study at all. And uh, achieving enlightenment, some, I see people like that. <laughs> achieving enlightenment, he just spontaneously understood the entire content of all the sutras and tantras and wrote some of the most profound literature you can find. It's profound and scholarly, as well as an amazing uh, meditation manuals. Um, Song to Choje went to meet him in Chaksam Labrang. Intending to test him and defeat him, he became convinced, however, that Jigme Lampo was completely free of ignorance and a master of immense stature. He became the greatest of his heart's son, and it was actually he who requested the composition of this amazing text called The Treasury of Precious Qualities, which we did a, a course on many years ago, the first volume of, of that, which is an amazing book. And who acted as the scribe for its great auto-commentary called The Two Chariots. <clears throat> he practiced, he excelled, and he mingled his mind with the master's mind. And it was thanks to this auspicious connection that in the present age, the two great lamas appeared again in the relationship of master and disciple. Jami and Kensei, being the master, said repeatedly that Mipam, the student's prowess and logic and epistemology had arisen through the power of habitual habitual tendencies forged in the past. So Mipam also was born with these uh, prodigy-like powers. Once when the Lord Ajita, um, Mipam Ribshe, so an epithet Ajita, I think is is unmoving or something like that, was building a new hermitage. He pointed to the window for the skylight that he just made with his own hands and remarked jokingly to a, his attendant that when he was in India, he'd been a, a skillful carpenter. So it was easy for him to make a, a really good window. That's pretty neat. <laughs> Thanks to his clear vision, born of wisdom, free from obscuration, Mipom knew many of his wondrous previous existences, pre-existences, but because he constantly concealed such things and kept them secret, there exists no sure record of what he said about them. In this life in particular, through his unrivaled knowledge and astonishing intellectual prowess and assurance, he nurtured the doctrine of the conqueror through teaching, debate, composition, elucidation, practice, and activities, and so forth. Uh, and in this way, he was no different from the great charioteers of India. The charioteers are generally considered to be Nagarjuna and Asanga, the two charioteers of the two different, two main streams of Mahayana Buddhism. The profound teachings of Nagarjuna and the vast teachings of Asanga, the two charioteers. Uh, he wonderfully adorned the world of ours and even the realm of the gods on the basis of the valid knowledge of direct perception. We know with certainty the causes that made him a noble and sublime bodhisattva. And this life is qualities of elimination and realization. These are the two aspects of Buddhahood. Elimination of defilements and uh, realization 
of all the knowledges and wisdoms or wisdoms and capabilities of a Buddha. Sometimes it's called elimination and um, realization or uh, there's another term that's usually used I can't remember. And this is something I find even more amazing than the record of as many hundreds of incarnations and times gone by. The birth of a bodhisattva. Mipam Rimshe had from the first severed the tendrils of the root of samsaric existence, nevertheless impelled by his aspirations of bodhicitta. While on the path of learning, the display of his emanations remains without interruption for as long as space exists, just like all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Thus is the, this the intrinsic nature of all the Bodhisattvas, the offspring of the conqueror. This great being accordingly took birth in Dokam, the region of four rivers and six mountain ranges in Drida, Zalmo, Gong, on the bank of the river Drida, which flows gently down from the Zalmo range of mountains in the north of the great capital city, great capital of Dege. Dege is one of the major cities in eastern Tibet. There, in the heart of a nomadic territory shaped like a jewel of good fortune, um, there lies the beautiful and prosperous Valley of Jew, so named because it was the place where the Hasidim gathered for many generations. Uh, no, wait, wait a second. I'm sorry. That's different. That's different. <laughs> Has nothing to do with being Jewish. Uh, there lies uh, so named because it was the place where the race of the gods of clear light came down to the earth on a celestial rope. So this is the legendary account of the uh, the uh, beginning of um, human civilization in Tibet, where uh, celestial beings came down from outer space by a celestial rope, a rope ladder that they made. And get this, then they mated with you got it, yeah, monkeys, and they created the human race. No way, right? You don't believe <laughs> that is the legendary account. And then at uh, the kings of Tibet, the early kings were said to like have this. They, they were like said to be from the. Uh, they, they were like mostly of the aliens, the celestial beings, and they had a connection through this rope to the celestial world. And then at some point, somehow the rope got cut. Somebody was like playing swordsmanship and cut the rope. Imagine like being the guy that does that. Oh my God, what a awful thing to have happen. What a bad day at work that is. Huh? And he cuts the rope that connects humans to the celestial beings and then from then on things degenerated anyway that's the deal and and uh you know when we do a law song a purification ceremony we, we like re we're repeating that whole mythology to some extent of the smoke going up and it's supposed to create a rope that idea of a rope for the celestial deities to come down on <laughs> anyway um it's in this place. This is where they descended. So like, you know, is that, did UFOs land there year, years ago and they developed this whole legend around it? Probably, right? Probably Tom Cruise was there and that's where this Dianetics, never mind. 
Successive generations of learned and accomplished masters were born there, all adorned with the qualities of the seed of their divine forefathers among them. Uh, many who was guided by the, the lion-faced Dakini, Simhamukha, famous uh, Dakini. So, you know, no, he's going to list all these great beings who are from that area. Just like, um, you know, you would list like all the great people from your town or your city. But slightly different greatness. And there was also a, a disciple of Machik, Lamjun. Um, holder of the teaching, uh, the, the transmission of severance, or should the profound path that vanquishes the Maras, the four Maras. There were also numerous powerful practitioners of mantra, four like the pillars of the doctrine of the Vajra essence of the great secret. Um, eight were like the adamantine beams of the celestial palace of the great vehicle, and 24 were like the lesser roof beams, powerful yogis, you know, all this poetic way of describing different like categories of great beings is pretty interesting. In that region of Jew, blessed as it was by successive generations of such masters, lay the district of Chukam, home to the clan of Achakdru. So now we get a little bit closer to Mipam and his family, finally. And uh, one of its ministers had been the chief minister to the Mongol Khan, you know, when the Mongols took over Tibet, along with the rest, most of the rest of the of the world, and uh, became a subject of King So and So. And he achieved certainty in the generation of perfection stages of several Yidam deities. So he did his sadhana practice and succeeded in it. And there were many tantric yogins who acquired amazing skill and power in the practice of wrathful mantras. There were 13 families of mantras on whose black yakir tents were emblazoned the symbols of the protector deities. That's cool. It, it's what sort of a, the symbols of the protector deities? You know, I don't know. That's a really good question. I, I imagine it's like the seed syllables of those deities of each one of them. And so the question is, did they paint them on there or did they appear spontaneously? I think the impl implication is they appeared spontaneously. Kevin? You have to unmute. Yeah, yeah I, have, I have a question. Did J.R. Tolkien uh, have access to this text? <laughs> it sounds like it, doesn't it? Uh, as such, they were an object of terror for all their... Yeah, it's like the numbers, the 13, the 9, the 7 holders of the rings, and the 5 dwarf kings, and the 3 power rings. Anyway, um, one of these yogis was Anye Kali, Mipam Rimshi's paternal uncle, and he tells us all about his uncle, whose brother was a great accomplished yogi, and let's see, uh, skipping ahead, um, let's skip ahead to 24, Mipam was thus the nephew of the previously mentioned Anye Kali, the hidden yogi who attained the level of Vidyadra with power over life. Mipam's father, Ju Gunpo Dargye, was a man of perfect disposition. He was kind and possessed all the qualities of a person belonging to the family of Bodhisattvas. Mipam's mother was Sing Chung. Her father was foremost among the minor chiefs of Gaitse, an outlying district of Dege. 
and it was through her that Mipon belonged to the clan of Mukpo Dong. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Mukpo Dong. That's not Dong. Dong. Chogim Trungpa's family. Yeah, Chogim Trungpa's family is Mukpo Dong. So Rimshe was very proud of that, that he was part of uh, the Mukpo clan, and and Mipom also was, and together they were part of Gesar's clan. Gesar, king of Ling, was from the Mukpo clan. Uh, Let's see. Belonged to the Mukpo Dong renowned for its power, courage, wealth, religious virtues, and the respect in which it was universally held. Perceiving these five favorable conditions, the Lord Mipom freely chose to take birth in this family in the, fi- in the fire male horse year, which was the Parabhava, or 40th year of the 14th Rabjung. That's how they kept track. It's not easy to keep track that way. 1846. Boom. He was born on the morning of the day in which the ambrosial drop, i.e. the moon. Isn't that a cool epithet for the moon? The ambrosial drop. Hey, did you see the ambrosial drop last night? <laughs> was in the mansion of Purvashada, Purvashada, and in a place called Chui Ding Chung, an area watched over by the great Ganyan spirit Dagyal Dorje Pengchuk, a regional protector obedient to Guru Rinpoche. Amazing the amount of like local Tibetan and regional lore that this is packed with. You know, Kansar Rinpoche was from this area, and so he knows all these little details of the the local legends and or its lore. You know, it's, it's sort of like somebody from where I lived, knowing the, you know, the, the details of Rip Van Winkle's life and the Headless Horseman and things like that, where he, you know, had his last meal and so forth. Then there were the circumstances of the birth of Mipom, who was himself like the rising sun adorned with marvelous marks and signs, like a lotus that float upon a great ocean. He was brought up and cared for according to the customs of his country. His paternal uncle crowned him with the name Mipom Gum. Gamso, unvanquished. So Mipom is unconquerable or unconquered. Ocean, Gatso is ocean, just like in Chugyam Gatso. Um, sorry, like in Chuki Gatso. So Chogyam, Chogyam Chungpur, Rimshe's first name, Chogyam, is a contraction of two names, Chuki Gatso. Chuki is Dharma with a genitive particle, and Gatso is ocean, ocean of Dharma. Just at the moment when a wonderful horse, a Kyong, was born. That's pretty cool. Like, that they feel like he, the fact that he was born at the same time as a horse, a certain time of horse, was like a really powerful thing. That's neat. Later, when uh, his father's property was being divided in two portions, Mipom demanded to have that horse. He's into that horse. From his early childhood, all the youthful vigor of the excellent qualities of the family, the great vehicle, ripened powerfully in him. It's a neat way of putting it. As the Regent Maitreya has said, compassion, aspiration, patience, conduct, excellently virtuous. To have these qualities before they have been taught reveals that one is of the lineage. To have, you know, be a, a child that's spontaneously this way. It's pretty amazing. Dean Mipom Rimshe possessed quite naturally 
<coughs> excuse me, an incomparable intelligence and among many other qualities, he had faith, compassion, and a determination to leave samsara. How many kids do you know have a determination to leave samsara? <laughs> he took the greatest delight in anything to do with the monastic life and with the study of texts. Whenever his family was traveling, this, I love this part, he would sit in a box made of hide and taking his stick in his hand, he would swirl and brandish it like Manjushri's sword. <laughs> this little baby, presumably like they put the box on the back of a, car, a cart or a horse or something, and he's there like playing around with his stick. Quite beyond the, or, the way of ordinary children, he had no thought other than that of his Yidam deity, Manjushri in peaceful and also, also wrathful form, Yamantaka, and of Gesar, his protector until all his first teeth were grown. What age is that? You guys that have children and know these things, what age are all this, all the first teeth grown? Like two years old or something? I haven't a clue. Except that he says... Two. He, two. I think thank two. you, Emily. Yeah, Emily, thank you. <laughs> it's a recent yeah. memory there. I thought you meant... Way too long ago for me. came in. <laughs> Isn't that the time that he meant? Like around 12 with the adult teeth? Or was it the baby teeth? Baby teeth, first teeth. He possessed a, uh, a clear, unforgetting memory of his previous life, around the age of six or seven, so it was before six or seven, right? He committed to memory the root text of the ascertainment of the, of the three vows. Now, come on. Memorize the text at the age of six or seven. So this text is translated in a book called Perfect Conduct by Nari Pancha and Wangi Gyalpo. And uh, it's about the three vows of refuge, bodhicitta, and samaya vow. And it's not a huge text, but, you know, it's like about a hundred pages or something. And uh, no, I, I guess the root text is short. It's probably like 40, 30, 40 pages. But anyway. And received a detailed explanation of it from the venerable Master Lama Draka Jeltsin, a bodhisattva in the very embodiment of the three trainings after studying with his uncle and a Mongolian Geshe, which is neat. The preliminaries of the black astro astrological tradition, which seems to ref which I think refers to the astrological tradition of China as opposed to the white one, which was India. He acquired a comprehensive understanding of the entire subject of astrology. So he could like read tarot cards, he could do your chart, whatever you want. By the time he was 10 years old, he was able to read and write fluently and even compose some texts, which he wrote on slate tablets. It was about that time, moreover, that the region of Jew was threatened by an army of about 1,000 brigands. Brigands? Brigands. Brigands. Thank you. The then 10-year-old Mipam had such doughty courage. What a cool word, doughty. When was the last time you came across that word? <laughs> uh, that without the slightest fear, he took his bow and arrow and marched straight into the middle of the word. <laughs> this 10-year-old boy like walks out there and marched uh, straight in the middle of her, and, and such was his skill that at the distance of 80 paces he was able to shatter a fragment of goat dung stuck on the tip of a needle. Uh, are they saying that like he killed them all with his bow and arrow, or that he scared them off with goat dung? Or uh, I, I was thinking brigands means a herd of goats, and he stormed into the herd of goats 
shot the dumb. <laughs> okay. Anyway, judicious in his judgments and true of heart, he became the object of universal praise. People used to say that he, had he decided to found a family, he would have reached the summit of worldly positions. To found a family. What an odd way of putting it, like, oh, I'm going to found a family. <laughs> anyway, entering the Dharma, following the general custom of the country, when Mipam Rinpoche reached the age of 12, so that's the general custom of the country. It's generally the eldest son goes into the monastic order uh, to, to be schooled. He entered Ju Mohor Song Songak Shejab Chuling, a branch monastery of the glorious Shechantene Dorje Ling. Shechantene Dorje Ling is the monastery of Rabjam Rimshe, who visited us a couple of summers ago, and who hopefully, by the way, will come again next fall. And um, the latter was located in the great sacred place of Rongjong, Songwei, Dorje, actually the pure field of Devi Kota, and followed the Dharma lineage of Okman Ogyan Mindraling, who was one of the main uh, monasteries and masters of the Nyingma, the source and wellspring of the most secret teachings. He Mindraling Trichen received like this huge, uh, what's called the sky treasures of... Uh, Terma. Mipom's monastery, where he lived as an ordinary monk, boasted an unbroken line of realized and accomplished masters. Those were indeed the days of sublime masters who never deviated from the constant practice of pure monastic conduct. And so it is, we find, in the great garland of lives, just like, just, uh, like light that follows on the heel of dawn, he followed in the footsteps of their perfect conduct. From his earliest years, Mipon would reflect that if he were to squander a single day meaningless activity, the little that he had, that had entered his understanding would be lost. <clears throat> I found that very inspiring. Like, you know, every day you have to apply yourself. Otherwise, it slips away. This weighed heavily on his mind, and it was constantly in his thoughts that if only he were to meet a learned master, he would give himself utterly to study and reflection. And it was in such a fervent state of mind that at the age of 15, he made his way to Dzogchen Monastery, which is one of the six great monasteries of the Nyingma tradition, along with Mindraling, in the company of a large contingent of his fellow countrymen. They were granted an audience, an audience rather, with Mingyur Nankye Dorje, the fourth Dzogchen Rinpoche, a powerfully accomplished master who had a complete realization of the four visions. Now, the four visions is a, a, a reference to a very esoteric system of realization in the Dzogchen practice. The advanced, most advanced stages of Dzogchen practice you saw in the notes there. In other words, I have I know nothing at all about it. Um, most of the people in Mipom's party did no more than ask the Lama for predictions about how long they would live and so on, like silly stuff, right? You know, like, what should I invest in? Should I go short on Bitcoin? Or, um, and after he had finished giving his replies, the master turned to Mipom, who till then had been silent. You, he said, should complete the approach and accomplishment phases of the practice of the supreme wrathful deity, the main figure in the cycle of the gathering of glorious ones. Page and Dupa. So, 
Um, in the Nyingma system of Sangha practice, they have this scheme called approach and accomplishment phases of uh, creation stage practice, development stage, sadhana, visualization practice, approach and accomplishment. And there's this particular sadhana called uh, the gathering of the glorious ones. The three worlds will be brought beneath your power and you will subdue the three levels of existence. Your life will be a mixture of comfort and pain and you will live for 80 years. He made many predictions in the same vein. As it turned out, his presence being needed elsewhere, Mipom did not live out his predicted lifespan. His presence being needed elsewhere. This is a, a common way of explaining the uh, early death of teachers, which was actually also mentioned to uh, in reference to Trunk Prabhupada's early departure, interestingly. Mipam, let's see. Uh, but the other prophecies of Dzogchen Rimshe, who had an unobstructed vision of the three times, did indeed come to pass. About that time, the king of Dharma and great emanated treasure discovered Chokshur Deshen Lingpa. It was one of the greatest territories in the, in the last couple hundred years. And he was the fourth guy along with uh, Kensei Wangpo the Great and Jonggun Kongchul the Great. Really the three of them and then to some extent with with uh, a lesser extent with Mipam, but really the three of them were the masters of the Rime tradition. And Chokshar Lingpa was the, the great mystic among those three too, those three individual incredible beings. And and when they, they needed to restore the connection of a text for which there was no transmission existing anymore, uh, he would go into a meditative state and, and meet the author of the text or the holder of the transmission or receive transmission and re, uh, reestablish that lineage. Uh, let's see. The king of Dharma and great emanated treasure discovered Chosher Dates and Lingba opened the door to the sacred land of Ziltrum. So uh, Shambhala is one of many sacred lands that are believed to exist in the Tibetan tradition, these secret, sacred lands that can only be found uh, through, uh, by realized masters who have like, I don't know, secret instructions. And it happened that Bipam Rimshi was making a circumambulation of the entire part of this place when he experienced the reign of Arura, the best of medicines, was able to fill the fold of his robe with it. So this medicine just rained from the sky. I don't know what the ruler is. And they don't give a footnote, but uh, he catches it in his robes. Nevertheless, it proved impossible for him to receive teachings and to study in that place at that time. He consequently made his way to Mesho, where he met a certain Lama Pema, who was from his own native region and was actually a disciple of Gyeltsa Shenpentaye. The Lama gave him a letter for the omniscient master, Kensei Wangpo, who at that moment was living at Terlung in the house of his father. When Mipam Rinpoche met him, he offered him the letter from Lama Payman and requested the ritual blessing for the sadhana called Praise of Manjushri. And the permission ritual for the practice of Manjushri, Lion of Speech, together with some instructions on the Sarvodaya Tantra. I don't know why they say swar, Swarodaya. I think it's Sarvodaya. Anyway, for the Manjushri permission ritual, Kensei Ramshay replied, you will need to stay for a few days. 
as for the Swarodaya, although I studied it when I was young, I have now forgotten it. Generally speaking, when one is accomplished, when one accomplishes the supreme Yadam deity, one acquires an extraordinary intellectual capacity. Without such accomplishment, how can one understand by hearing about things from someone else? So with these words, he went on to bestow the permission to practice. And the footnote says that basically, Kensei Rinpoche was saying, saying, while I don't have the details of this particular practice you've requested, if you accomplish realization or accomplish uh, fulfillment of, a, of any one particular practice, you thereby gain entryway into understanding all other practices, all other deity practices. On his way home, Mipom visited Peipong, Chupten Chukruling, the great monastic center, one of the sources for the study of logic for in the snowy land. The snowy land, obviously, is Tibet. There he met for the first time the great Bodhisattva Kenpa Karma Tashi Uzer. They immediately became fast friends as close as father and son, and the Kenpo predicted that in the future his mind and the mind of Mipom Rimshe would mingle into one from the great treasure of compassion, Peipong Wontro, uh, who is a great teacher from Peipong Kagyu Monastery, Sitarimshi's monastery, he received a detailed explanation of the four glorious medical tantras. So in the Tibetan tradition, their, their whole medical system is based on these four tantras that are attributed to the Buddha, which encapsulate all the, the details of uh, the medical system. So Mipam is like, one by one, he's accumulating all sorts of different types of knowledge, astrology, all sorts of Dharma knowledge, medicine now. Uh, the meaning of which he completely assimilated from Kenshin Manga, Karmatashi Oze, Mipam borrowed an old incomplete volume of the root text of the Swarodaya, which the Kenshin had received from Jamgun Kongcho Rinpoche himself. There was no one who could, who could explain it to him, but he said that after praying repeatedly to Manjushri, he needed only to read the text to gain a full understanding of its words and meaning. So this is where we see the first, well, not the first, he already memorized this advanced text at the age of six or seven, but now we see this reference to him needing not not needing explanation of texts that immediately when he reads them, he can understand them, which is pretty unusual because these texts are not easy to understand. Um, and not only of the text itself, but also of the pith instructions and the secret seal teachings of the oral transmission lineage. Somehow he gains access to in later life. Mipam Rimshe was to compose a commentary on the very text. Returning to his homeland of Junyong, he took up residence in the hermitage of Chime Chuk Drup Ling. There he spent 16 months in retreat, practicing the approach and accomplishment. These two phases of uh, development stage practice or sadhana practice of the sadhana manjushri line of speech enhanced through the preparation of consecrated pills. So they're also into this whole system of dharma pills that they make out of uh, like a uh, hundred or, or hundreds of different ingredients, sacred and, and profane. This practice belongs to the lineage, lineage and is based on the oral instructions of Dhamma Sangye. Uh, Dampa Sangye was one of the early uh, masters that came from India in the second turning of the wheel of the Dharma in Tibet. The guide of supreme adepts, many signs common in particular of ordinary and extraordinary accomplishment manifested. 
rainbows or things like that. Most especially Mipam Rimshe had a direct vision of uh, Vajratikshna, the treasurer of intelligence and wisdom deity of all the conquerors, a ray of light shone from the deity's heart and melted into him. And from that moment onward, through a simple reading of a major minor te- of the major minor texts of the Sutra Tantras of the various sciences, he was able to assimilate their contents with an overwhelming sun-like brilliance. He used to say that because he was unhindered in the three actions of exposition, debate, and composition, there was never any need for him to labor and studying and learning from other masters, and that this was thanks to the kindness of Manjushri. When he was 17, the nomads from the northern reaches, harassed by their enemies from Yarong, fled to Golok. Golok is far eastern Tibet. Mipam went there also and became famous for his expert mastery of astrological calculations. In his 18th year, he was accompanied by Gyurzong, his uncle on a pilgrimage to the central provinces of U and Song, <coughs> which is uh, central Tibet, includes Lhasa, the field of perfect thought and deed. There he spent a month at the great monastic center of Drokriwo Gondon, which is a, a Galugpa monastery, and visited widely the holy places in the south of Tibet. In particular, he went to Lojok Karchu, the most important of the great this is blessed by Rongjumpe Mikjelpo, the self-arisen Lotus King, Guru Rinpoche. There his ordinary perceptions dissolved into the ultimate expanse, and all that he saw or did was, was experienced as a union of bliss and emptiness. I think that means he gained enlightenment. Um, I, I, I have a hunch. I, I'll put money on that. And for several days, his body was filled with an intense sensation of warmth and bliss. Later, when speaking about that time and place, he would say to his assistant that his experience was certainly due to the blessing power of the region. Oh, is that it for tonight? Yeah. Hey, did anybody read the article that I sent out? You only have an extra week to read it, so probably not. I did, and geez, it it was like really, really dense. Yeah, wasn't that cool? Very dense. Oh my gosh, it was like somebody, you know, who was doing a philosophy PhD and wanted to impress his his, <laughs> his committee or something. I mean, it was unbelievable. <laughs> That's so funny. That's great. Uh, I started reading it. And I liked it. I, I mean, it was I, it was slow going, but um, I, I'm looking forward to reading the rest of it. Well, so let's see. Today's the 18th. I must have sent it like on the fifth or the sixth. Where, where, oh, where would that be? Oh no! Anybody else venture into it? Here it is. Pretty silent out there. No one else, huh? I I must admit, I had to break out my dictionaries many times. (laughs) (laughs) Really, on English words. That's great. (laughs) This is a Buddha nature you're talking about, right? Yeah, the introduction to Mipam on Buddha nature by Douglas Duckworth Book. Duckworth. 
Duckworth. Duckworth. Uh, let's see, what was, there was part of it that I thought maybe we could go through. Yeah. I'll see if I can bring it up on screen. What do you think? Is that possible? What are the odds? Uh, but actually, you know, also any comments on uh, what we went through so far or anything else about Mipom Rimshe? People, comments or questions? What do you think of this sort of life story? How do you like this sort of... Uh, you know, like the beginning part, this whole mad, you know, uh, sort of mythical emanation of Manjushri and cosmology and all this stuff. Any any reaction to that? Anyone? Well, I always was confused, like who Manjushri was and everything. So that was really good. And I, I did a little bit of other research and how Manjushri is comes up in several forms of Buddhism. So that was really good, that part. I like that. Good. So you feel comfortable you have a grasp on his life now? <laughs> and who he was? On Manjushri? Or, or Manju, Manjushri. Well, Manjushri. <laughs> well, after you were reading it, I said, yeah, if you can't follow all this stuff, just say Manjushri did it. Because <laughs> he appears everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, pretty omnipresent. Created a couple images of Manjushri, and that's why it's been of interest to me. Cool, neat. Well, now, now you have the background story on him. Yeah, the scoop. You have the real scoop. I, I felt really intimidated at first when I was reading. I just thought, oh my god, I'll never learn any of this. And then it kind of morphed into like a real expansive just perspective not with any details but just kind of like oh wow this is really so much larger than i could ever comprehend anyway which was kind of a cool perspective yeah yeah it's pretty overwhelming and uh, sort of mind-blowing in that way um here let's take a peek at the at some of the things in this um, so I need to, oops, I need to screen share, share screen, screen share something. Life and works of Meepalm, right? Um, we went through this already. Child prodigy, prodigy rather, sorry. Became known as the little scholar monk. Can you guys see this? On screen. Yep. After doing a retreat. So this is like a little condensed life of Mipom, which I found very helpful to sort of summarize uh, his, his life in a, quickly. Uh, he achieved signs of accomplishments. He did retreat for 18 months in Manjushri. He knew the scriptures thereafter without studying, did not need to study other than simply receiving the reading transmission, which is Lung in Tibetan. And let's say he went to Lhasa pilgrimage. That was U and Song, central Tibetan study at a Galuk monastery of Gondon. Rio Gondon for a month and uh, studied with many great teachers of the day, Kensei, Paltrow, 
Pongchul, with Paltrul, he studied the Bodhicharavatara. Pacha Rinpoche is famous for having taught the body of Charavatara like a hundred times. And uh, he wrote the, the uh, book of the words of my perfect teacher. And later composed a commentary in the ninth chapter, the wisdom chapter. This is Mipom. <coughs> that chapter became very contentious within the scholarly world, particularly among Galupas. We'll see, we saw reference to that in the introduction and we'll see that later. Uh, he studied the common arts, grammar with Kongchul, as well as various extraordinary practices of ripening and liberation. That's Dharma practice, of course. And let's see, when he studied uh, the Madhyamaka Avatara, so this is the introduction to the Middle Way by uh, Chandra Kirti, with a certain Geshe Naong Jungne, he got the reading transmission he, saying he didn't need to bother with a commentary. And after hearing the, the reader, the teacher, rather read the text just once, Mipam then explained it all from the beginning. The teacher says, who's the Geshe here? You're, this, this kid is the real Geshe. He was not endorsed as an incarnate Lama Tulku, which was a, a very unusual thing for a great being like him not to be uh, sort of plugged, pinned with a Tulku name. And... Uh, also, he didn't participate in the Terima tradition. He didn't discover Terimas. He didn't teach Terimas. Um, but instead, he wrote commentaries on a variety of topics, logic, poetics, the Middle Way, medicine, astrology, a sex manual. He was a polymath. Um, he didn't mention mathematics, but I don't, I don't know. For some reason, he calls him a polymath. He also wrote on uh, many different tantric texts from the old and new schools. And his huge literary output, 27 volumes, which is like um, one volume is generally about six to 800 pages in, Eng in English. So that's a lot of pages. Four different cycles. Narratives, eulogies, ordinary arts, inner art, Buddhism, and dedications, and so forth. So he goes through these different things. And uh, the third cycle on Buddha Dharma is uh, commentaries on the vehicle of characteristics, which is Sutrayana. And then the Vajrayana of the common inner and outer tantras is the, the new tantra system of the newer schools of the Nutriyoga Tantra system, and then the extraordinary Vajrayana of the Kala Chakra Tantra, which is the culmination of the new Tantra system. And then he writes on the Nyingma Tantra systems. And, um, and then he writes on the four activities of pacifying, enriching, magnetizing, and subjugating. It's neat. I found that neat that he wrote specifically on uh, these activities, which are the four karmas. And then Derek, Derek, do you know where where that particular set of writings are? Yes, it's in his uh, what's called Songbong, which is a Tibetan word for his collected works, and you could find this in uh, on online and uh, uh, provided by an organization called Tibetan Buddhist Resource Center, now called oh, right. Buddhist uh, um, Buddhist Digital Resource Center, but it's in Tibetan. I don't not. I don't think any of this has been translated yet. Oh, okay. That's what I was wondering. That sounded really cool. To me. Yeah, yeah. 
While we're left with a voluminous corpus of, of writings, his life story describes him as not studying much and spending a lot of time in retreat. And he's encouraged to write commentaries by his teacher, Jami Kensei Wangpo. He wrote to fulfill his teacher's wishes. And um, he writes to promote the Nyingma tradition, which is uh, the scholarly presentation of which had dwindled to near extinction. And unlike other prominent sectarian traditions in Tibet, the, the Nyingma did not have an authoritative commentarial corpus on the central, when they say exoteric, they mean sutrayana, Buddhist treatises from India. So therefore his texts were very influential within the Nyingma tradition, in particular in the monastic colleges, they became the main source books, textbooks in those colleges up to the present day. And he gives some example of those. And Mipam's <clears throat> commentaries on the treatises include a commentary on the Abhidharma Kosha, Treasury of Abhidharma Bhava Subandhu, the, the ornament of Madhyamaka of the Middle Way by Shantarakshita, the Commentary on Valid Cognition by Dharmakirti, the Pramanavartika, the Mahayana Sutra Alamkara is the Compendium of Mahayana Sutras by Maitreya, the Ninth Chapter of the Bodhicharavatara by Shantideva, and the Kavya Darsha is a, is a poetry text, an Indian poetry text on how to uh, compose poetry. And then he also commented, did commentaries on Longchenpa's treasure, one of his treasuries, and Longchenpa's commentary on the main Nyingma Tantra system. And then he wrote uh, independent compositions, The Gateway to Scholarship, the Gateway to Knowledge, which is translated into English as The Gateway to Knowledge. And it's primarily on, uh, com it's really commentary on the Abhidharma Kosha, the support, sword of, sword, the sword of supreme knowledge, which is the sword of wisdom which we did a course on a number of years ago, actually two courses on, and it presents the Nyingma version of uh, logic, the beacon of certainty, and the lion's roar, exposition of Buddha nature, which is in our book, and we'll be going through later tonight. No, sorry, not tonight. Um, and then two events, particularly, this This is called, first is the dream of Sakya Pandita, who was another Manchushri emanation we saw earlier, 13th century Sakya scholar. So he, uh, Mipam had read Dharmakirti's text and Buddhist epistemology, Pramanavartika, and the dream. Sakya Pandita tells the Mipam, what is to be known about epistemology in the Pramanavartika? What is to be known is two things, negation and affirmation. He divides the text in two. It's like he's like with a deck of cards, right? He takes the text and he divides it into two parts. <laughs> he cuts the deck, right? He divides it in two and tells Mipam to put the two parts of the text together. And when he did, they became a sword and all objects of knowledge appeared before him. Now, there's a lot of objects of knowledge. You know, that's like everything. Like, where would you put it sort of thing? But it all appeared before him and he cut through it with the sword once. And thereby he understood everything without obstruction. And there was not a word in the Pramana Vartika that he did not understand, which is generally considered to be the most difficult of all texts in the Buddhist tradition. And let's see, there's a little further description of the significance of this, which we'll skip for the moment. And 
then there's this description of debate, which is not all that interesting actually. But so let's hear just a little glimpse of the system of epistemology of Dharma Kirti. He puts forth a binary system of knowledge. Now I'm not very good on complicated words, but binary I think means twofold. Is that right? Anyone? Twofold binary. Good. Thank you. There's the real and the unreal. <laughs> what, what's real and not real. The real and the unreal correspond to the radical dichotomy of particulars and universals. So particulars are real and universals are unreal. Isn't that cool? It's the opposite of Plato, right? In Plato, the universals are the true reality that are the pure forms in the cave or whatever, wherever they live. I don't know. But in the Buddhist epistemological tradition, universals are conceptual elaborations. Universals are conceptual uh, fabrications, concepts, general ideas, right? And particulars are the, are the real things of the world. You know, this table as opposed to tables. These two are validly known. So, so these two objects, universals, particulars and universals, are validly known. So like decisively understood or experienced by either direct perception or inference. So those are the two means of direct knowledge or valid knowledge, sorry. The two means of valid understanding of reality is either direct perception or inference, exclusively by means of either non-conceptual affirmative engagement or conceptual eliminative engagement. <clears throat> um, I believe the author here is giving a gloss on the types of inference. Um, I'm sorry, no, he's given a gloss on these two ways of knowing, of definitive knowing or valid knowing. Non-conceptual, direct perception is non-conceptual and it's an affirmative engagement. When our senses perceive something directly without concept, they affirm, they engage the object in an affirmative manner. And when we know something through inference, through uh, conceptual valid cognition called inference, we know it through eliminative engagement, negating contradistinctions. We negate everything that the thing is not conceptually. And all those boil down to negation and affirmation, which is a central part of the structure of Dharmakirti's epistemology, and they constitute the two means of conventional valid knowledge. And understanding this is fundamental to understanding Buddhist epistemology, at least on the ordinary level. And he says this because Mipam comes up with, and this was referenced somewhere else in our reading, various readings, that Mipam comes up with a system of two levels of, of uh, valid knowing. There's the conventional level of valid knowing, which consists of these, the scheme of direct perception and inference. And then there's the, uh, the um, ultimate level of valid knowing, which is the experience of enlightened mind. Anyway, that's plenty for tonight. Why don't we conclude, unless there's any other comments or suggestions or questions. Very well then.
we'll uh, do our chanting to conclude. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Nice to see you. Thank you for this opportunity to go through this material. Take care. See you soon. Thanks. Thank you, tech host Emily. My pleasure. Thanks.